When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Lieb. And I'm Vince Mancini. And this is Pod Yourself a Gun, a Sopranos podcast where we go through every single episode of The Sopranos and talk about it. It's themes, you know, we talk about the uh, it, the themes and, uh, <laughs> and also we get into the themes. And uh, it, it's going to be a really wonderful episode today. Our guest is Matt Zollerseitz. And uh, you know him from New York Magazine, uh, and you are the editor uh, at large over at uh, over at RogerEbert.com. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Now uh, we first our very first episode we had uh, Alan Seppenwall, and you two wrote a book together. We've actually written more than one book together. More than we one wrote- book. Yeah, we wrote TV the book, which was a survey of basically the history of American television. Wow. That came out 3 years ago and then and now this and we're working on a third book which I can't announce yet because oh. we don't we don't actually have a green light, but I think we're pretty close. That's And it's shockingly it's about television. Well, you know what? I mean, you know, write what you know. He told me it's actually yeah. a reboot of The Great Gatsby. He told oh, me in yeah. Great Gatsby reboot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they... it's the it's the it's the it's the discount Gatsby. Yeah. They keep rowing that fucking it's, boat towards yeah, the light. Yeah. It's mostly it's mostly just about yeah, beating your your paddles back senselessly towards the wind. <laughs> so Matt, where were you working at the time when uh The Sopranos first uh debuted? I was working at the Star Ledger in beautiful Newark, New Jersey. Oh, gorgeous. Uh, I'd, been, I'd been there for three years. And, of course, you know, a lot of the, the main action in The Sopranos is set in and around Newark. And that's where Tony's family lived and, and uh, you know, before they migrated out to a big house in North Caldwell, New Jersey. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I was in the right place at the right time, me and Alan both. Um, and uh, I got the phone call uh, from a publicist at HBO named Frances Edwards, who was also a New Jersey native. She lived in Cherry Hill. And she said, Matt, you know, she knew me and she was one of these, you know, I mean, you guys are in the business. So, you know, that it's very rare that you deal with a publicist who actually pays attention to what you write and they know what you like and right, don't like. Right, yeah. right, right. Right. And like, there's like, at any given time, there's anywhere from five to 10 of those. If you're lucky out mm-hmm. of the hundreds that you deal with. Well, Frances was one of those people. And she called me up and said, Hey, I just watched the pilot for this show called the Sopranos. And I can guarantee you, this is exactly the kind of thing you're going to go crazy for. And I was like, that's a bold statement. Send it <laughs> over. And she, <laughs> she was right. 
she was right. And it was, you know, and I, and the first time I interviewed David Chase was, you know, I said, well, of course we'd write about this anyway, because it's a New Jersey show, but this is actually a really interesting show. And can I interview anybody associated with it? And the first person I interviewed was David Chase and they were shooting uh, some second unit footage at Roosevelt Island. And I interviewed him and for some reason he was, <laughs> we did the interview, we were sitting in these folding metal chairs like outdoors and it was it was really cold it was like a oh, late october early november yeah jersey and we're, sitting, and we're sitting no this is roosevelt island oh i don't know where know, that is is that new that's, that's right off of manhattan oh okay it's all the and, same to me i'm from california <laughs> <laughs> there you go but but it was it was bitterly cold and the wind was whipping in off the off the water and um i was freezing like crazy but he was sitting there like he wanted to do his thing outside. And I just felt like we were in an Antonioni film and he was talking <laughs> about his influences and he was mentioning, you know, Antonioni and Fellini and, uh, you know, all the major sort of European art film directors of the sixties and the American new wave people from the seventies. And I thought like, I've never had a conversation like this with somebody who ran a TV show before. Uh -huh. Like they didn't lead with that. Yeah. You know, it was something yeah. where, you had several conversations with them. Maybe they would mention it, but I think the assumption was their bosses didn't care about that. The press didn't care about that. There was no point in even bringing it up. But he, but the fact that that was kind of what he was telling me, this is what I'm trying to do, is something in this tradition. And then we finally flash forward to 2007. We get to that ending, and you realize, oh, he wasn't joking. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This was like no. before uh, TV showrunners were and creators were allowed. Uh, to discuss their influences, probably right. It was before they were allowed to do art. I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, there. I would say there were there were there were some examples before of people who were able to do that. Like the people who created Hill Street Blues were not shy about acknowledging the the works of Robert Altman because they, you know it was an ensemble cast and mm -hmm. a roaming camera, and they would talk. They would let two people talk, and then the camera would move and pick up a conversation by some other people, and that was the kind of thing that Altman had been doing in the seventies. So mm -hmm. you know, so once in a while you'd get some shows that were upfront about the fact that they were stealing. They were stealing from somebody in cinema, um, but no, but almost, but they didn't talk about their vision really. And 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 you know what was different about this show was it was um, it was not the first HBO show to have pretensions to be art, but it was the first one that was a big hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And arguably, you know, and arguably, uh, I don't think something like a Game of Thrones, which cost five hundred bazillion dollars per hour would exist if if they hadn't had the Sopranos, which was both critically acclaimed and a hit. Right. You know? Yeah. Oh, so before we get any further, we do have to play the theme song, which uh is oh, yeah. actually influenced by uh Kurosawa and mm -hmm. uh Antonioni and, and Truffaut. I <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and also the Rizza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh yeah, here we go. Pod. 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 Podcast. Pod. 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 Podcast. Oh, yeah, we're uh, we're playing. <laughs> we're, we're we're skirting the uh, the parody rules real close there. 
but that was that was that was uh, that was what uh, my buddies and I in the eighties would call stupid fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We like to keep it stupid fresh. <laughs> yeah, here on Pod Yourself a Gun. So. You know, unlike every other Sopranos podcast, uh, you know, we just we just like to take the piss out of the we're, whole. We're thing. the cool. The yeah, we're the cool kids. Cool loose ones. You yeah, know? yeah, not yeah, like yeah. All well, these I can others. tell you right now that's the last time I'm going to mention Antonioni. <laughs> Um, so, uh, the, uh, so this episode is called Pax Soprano, Mm -hmm. Pax Soprano. Soprano. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and, and and we're going to do the Wayback Machine. This was released February 14th, 1999. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, number one song in the country, uh, was actually, uh, Angel of Mine by Monica. Oh, I don't know that one. Yeah, I don't really know that one either. Yeah. Um, a rock song was What It's Like by Everlast. Oh, wow. And that's a tie-in to uh, random random fact here. Uh, people asked, uh, some, I think, reporter asked uh, mayoral, uh, Mayor Pete, uh, mm-hmm. uh, butt judge? Booty judge, yeah. 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 Um, what his, uh, you know, what he said, his the song of his campaign would be, uh-huh. uh, or what song most closely describes him, and he said Everlast, what it's like. <laughs> Interesting choice. And I just thought, like, yeah, that is the music of our generation. You know, he's 37 years old. That is the song that would describe him. Yeah. I think. I think Everlast kicked off that period in music where suburban white dudes were really, like, they they had a lot of angst. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. It was like before they had real problems, but it was when they were really angry about something. Right, right, right. It's that pre nine eleven angst yeah. where people had a lot of aggression but nowhere to like put it out. So they just watched Fight Club and they listened to Slipknot, you yeah. know? Um the, Sim- simpler times. Simpler times. Uh number yeah. one movies that weekend, message in a bottle, uh payback, my favorite wow. my favorite Martian, uh She's All That. And uh, blast from the past, which was uh, that's the that's the other movie where Brendan Fraser plays uh, basically an unfrozen caveman. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He also in his Cino family. Man yeah, is... he was stuck in a bomb shelter. Right, 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 yeah. right, right. Yeah, huh? You know, really squeezing. I mean, I think that was before they realized that Brendan Fraser could play other roles besides someone who had been unfrozen. Yeah, but can he? No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. He is a fa- fantastic actor. I miss him. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it was also the Clinton trial was going on, and uh, top headline uh, was most Americans approve of Senate impeachment vote. Uh, breathing an almost aud- almost audible sigh of relief, the vast majority of Americans approve of the Senate's decision Friday not to remove President Clinton from office and oppose any action that would extend the controversy further, a Los Angeles Times poll has found. Wow. So, yeah, people were not uh, down with the star investigation. I think that's, you know, yeah, it yeah, started yeah. to turn the other way. I it guess. started to turn. People were like, hey, leave him alone, you know? Yeah. We're, we, we'll drag Monica as <laughs> much as we fucking feel like it. Excuse my language. But yeah. when it comes to Bill, leave him alone. Yeah. What did he do except for, you know, abuse his power? <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, so that's the Wayback Machine. Any Anything else happening uh, around this time in 1999? Oh, you know, the, the they banned uh, pla- glass bottles on Mount Everest. Is that what they did? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, yeah, that was one of the other headlines. I don't have them all in front of me, but that was one of the other ones. Wait, so they had to ban it? So many yeah, people there was were a lot bringing, of trash. A lot of people were bringing their trash to Mount of, Everest. Everybody trying to climb Everest. Listen, if you're already at Mount Everest and you've got some trash, you just let them throw the trash. <laughs> the trash isn't going to come, come down. Come on, the Sherpas live there. Do people live in Mount Everest? I don't know. All right, I think they it's just, where they work. It's where they work. Yeah. 
Okay, so in this episode, it's a living. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we got to get into uh, Bada B stories of this episode. Yeah. So it's called uh, Pax Romana, or uh, sorry, Pax Soprana, mm-hmm. which obviously is, uh, you know, that's a reference to Pax Romana. Yes. Which means what is like the period peace. Of, of peace. Yes. Peace Roman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and uh, it, it's kind of a perfect description of the episode a bit too, because this is sort of. Titles, do, good titles do that, I find. Yeah. That's the thing about titles <laughs> is like when they're not just completely random and esoteric or, you know, I mean, in this case, it's like it really is. Uh, uh, sort of peacetime uh, when it comes to, and it's about kind of like keeping the peace. That's kind of the, one of the themes yeah. of the episode. Spreading the wealth around. It's spreading the wealth around. So in terms of uh, um, what we have for here is our segment, Bada B Stories, where we just kind of list out some of the things that happened. Uh, number one, we've got uh, now a newly christened uh, head of the New Jersey crime family junior soprano yeah and uh and so we see kind of the mishigas that he gets into as soon as he's given power and by the way i i just have to say watching watching uh junior soprano uh in that in the scene where he is uh getting tailored for a suit mm-hmm. <laughs> <and> yeah <laughs> and the first thing he does after he he mentions in the scene uh you know oh what how's your grandson and the tailor doesn't really want to get into it, and he says, uh, you know, oh, yeah, he, you know, he died, and uh, you know, says some something happened with like drug dealers or something, and, mm-hmm. and and it's clear that that the tailor doesn't want to talk about it, but he's taking his cues. Uh, Junior is taking his cues from Godfather One from the opening scene, so <laughs> yeah. so he's like, no, 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 this is my chance to pull a, a Vito Corleone right here. You know, because the the opening scene of uh, of of Godfather One is, I think, what the the Undertaker talking about, like how his daughter was like. I raised my daughter in the American fashion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they they beat her like an animal. <laughs> and those two bastards, they smile at me. And I said, for justice, we must go to Vito Corleone. And and I just I love that in that moment he's like, this is my chance to be Vito. Right. But I think so. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was going to say, like, one of the main uh, conflicts in this episode is the conflict between Junior trying to be like the mobster he's seen in movies, mm-hmm. but he's also like still kind of a grumpy old man. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so it's like this constant. So I have a, I have a clip of that, uh, of right after that, where he's talking to the tailor. I, I pulled that one. Mm-hmm. Did you know about this? See what I say about this fucking poison. These kids shouldn't touch it. <laughs> I read the paper every day about these poor pricks overdosing. He didn't overdose, he killed himself. 14 years old. Jesus. Was this a Patterson Falls? Holy shit, that was your grandson? What? The kid, he took one of those uh, designer drugs, right? Goes to the falls, takes a header right off the fence. They said the, the, the current world so much that, that his head was bashing on the rocks for days before he even came up. <laughs> and meanwhile, this piece of shit he, he gets to walk the streets and sell more of this stuff to young kids. So, yeah, this is really establishing the theme of Junior watching too much TV. Yeah, no, if Junior Soprano was like, if this were 2019 Sopranos and Junior is around, 
uh, he's a Fox News grandpa. Oh, for sure. That's what he is. He's, I think it was like, what, two episodes ago where he's like, and then these gays in the military. <laughs> yeah, right. It's clear that that's, he, you know, he takes his cues from a lot of like conservative media and just kind of like local news mm-hmm. and just like watching, you know, carjacking happen, happens in Newark. And he's like, these blacks. It's <laughs> like, he's your racist, you know, uh, grandfather who watches too much news. Except for now, he's the boss. Yeah. So not knowing, having the local knowledge. So the bridge in this episode where Mikey Palmisi throws off, throws the guy off the bridge, is that Patterson Falls? It is indeed. And it's, it's, uh, it's been used, uh, you know, multiple times on the show, uh, before. And in fact, I think in the pilot that, uh, that guy that, uh, Tony and Christopher almost run over, that's where they take him to, they're going to throw him over the falls. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so, yeah. So that's the other theme is Mikey Palmi's, uh, kind of, a, kind of a shithead. That's kind of his, that's, <laughs> his, that's, his thing is to be the, t- is, the too much information kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. And also, uh, the murder bridge, you know, that's, yeah. that's their thing. They find, I mean, that's the bridge to go to. Is that, is that a bridge that is known <laughs> for as like a mafia throw them over the side bridge? I don't know about that, but it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, unless there was a plaque that I missed. Yeah, yeah. Um, Have you ever but, killed uh, anyone but, there? Is what we're asking. <laughs> that we know of, right? Yeah, I mean, of. you know, because they mention, you know, in other episodes, they talk about dumping people. I think in the Pine Barrens, right? And and yeah, yeah, that and is Meadowlands, and you know, they end upstate. Yeah, Meadowlands, right? Upstate, upstate yeah, and yeah. so it's like, uh, you know, these these are. I imagine kind of like known for places to bury bodies. So maybe... Well, you know, New Jersey is a very woodsy state. It is. It is. plenty of places where you can do that. And also it's a state with, as you know, as as is covered in the narrative of this here series, uh, plenty of construction. Yeah, right. Done in the state of New Jersey where concrete is poured. Uh, and and the, that's something I like. Uh, it's kind of a running joke on the show, and they they don't really forget it. Like they they continue to use it for comic mileage. This idea that um, bodies don't off they don't always stay buried. You know, sometimes you have to go dig them up and yeah. relocate them, yeah. and then sometimes dig them up yet again and relocate them a second time. Because, yeah. You know, there's always things being built. There's a housing. They just broke ground on a new housing development. Somebody has to get up in the middle of the night and go drive and dig up a body. Yeah, I got to get the bones again. I would hope you'd give that to like a. I mean, it's tough because you want to give it. You don't want to do it to yourself. You want to. You want to give it to like the low man on the totem pole. But also, if he screws it up, right, then you're in big trouble and too. I, I, I well, think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's definitely one of those. If you want it done right, you got to do it yourself situations, especially in in, in the New Jersey family because there's a there's a lot of boneheads in that family it's not a, it's not a brain trust no it's certainly not the lower you get on the totem pole the lower the iq gets you know even you know even like by the time you get to the end of this thing like Polly walnuts is basically like the second in command and that guy <laughs> you know he's he's in no he's he's he wasn't going to give stephen hawking a run for his money anytime soon no he's my other wasn't. favorite thing about but he would beat show. him he would beat him in a push-up contest sure yeah it's like yes he would. from the very beginning they always look to uh, Polly Walnuts as like the muscle, yeah. And I just try to imagine like that guy, like uh, Dominic, whatever. Like, like that, I try to imagine that guy like intimidating someone yeah. in real life. And uh, I mean, he could mean mug really well. Yeah, no, he's an intimidating guy. I, I think he's, he's he he is, and also back in the day, he was pretty strapping. Like you know, he's in Godfather too, and he looks like somebody you wouldn't want to cross. He was in Godfather too. 
he was, yeah. I, I did not know that. Look at that. There's um, the crossover right there, because I know that uh, Junior was was uh, in Godfather 2 as well. Junior was. There's a, there, yeah. there's, a, there's, a fair, there's a fair amount of crossover. And in fact, uh, and all, of course, with the, you know, the, the expanded Scorsese-verse. Yeah, oh, right. Uh, a lot of that, too. And in fact, there's, you know, one of the footnotes in the book is that when... Um, uh, Chase, one of the people that he considered for the role of Uncle Junior was um, uh, Frank Vincent. Oh, right. yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, who eventually came in in season five and became, you know, probably the most important antagonist in the final run of the sure, show. Yeah. And, and he read him for Uncle Junior and he said, like, you know, he was, in his opinion, equally good but different. It was just a different energy. Yeah. And he and on the way out, uh, Vincent said to Chase, look, I know that I know that you're considering Dominic Chianese for this, but, I'm, you know, I'm just going to tell you right now, like, it's got to be one of the two of us because there's only a certain number of guys who are right for a part like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You and, know, and he wasn't, and he wasn't wrong. Yeah, he wasn't wrong. yeah. And then you know, he, he I like came I li- back as Phil Leotardo. Perfect. Yes, he did. Yeah. I mean, I like what Dominic Chianese brings to the role because he's not, he's not like the on the nose choice. Like the, yeah. like there's some on the nose casting choices for a lot of the minor characters. Sure. But like Junior, that's like a that's a different one. Like you don't yeah. see that. You didn't see that kind of guy necessarily as like uh, you know a mob boss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he played a wonderful, you know, clueless old man. And <laughs> yeah. and that was I, I think that's what I love about this episode specifically is because this episode is literally uh, there's a clip where you've got uh Olivia kind of manipulating um manipulating Junior for the it's the first time you see her I think in the series um kind of moving the chess pieces around uh, and trying to do it like surreptitiously. Uh, do we have that that clip ready? Uh, yes, I do. All right. Uh, it's a little. Uh, we'll, we'll see how much we can play. I know how long you waited to be made boss. Just don't let certain people take advantage of your good nature like they did to Johnny. What certain people? Nobody got over on Johnny. Nobody's going to get over on me. See. I love that line so much because this episode literally everyone gets over on Junior. This this, this episode you've got He's still the boss though. He's still the boss, but not really. You know, that's <laughs> sure. the yeah. the great thing about it is like n- number 1, uh Livia is getting getting over on him in that very moment. Right. Just being like, "Hey, watch out for certain people. He should watch out for you." <laughs> like like you are the most manipulative of anyone else. And then not only that, you've got both Johnny Sack getting over on him, Tony's getting over on him, uh, and uh, Hesh is getting over on him. Like, literally everyone does in this episode. And But they, they put on the smile, and they go, God, you're such a smart man. And he's just like, well, I am wearing a suit. So well, that was that, that was a question. Like, I think it's an open question of whether he's, like, letting them do it in this. Like, he seems somewhat conscious of it. I, I don't think so. What do you know? mean, letting them manipulate him? Yeah, or just like he knows, he, like he seems like he kind of sees what they're trying to do, like in the sit down scene. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't read it like that. Because no? if they okay. knew, if they, if he, if he knew what they were doing, he'd be super insulted. Because uh, like that sit down scene is some of the hammiest acting that you see. The the, the, the sit down scene you've got Johnny Sack. Uh, pretending to be you know lauding you know his his smarts you know junior's genius as as a leader and he's doing it in such a hammy way that it's like i I think if junior knew 
he would be like, stop talking down to me, motherfucker. Sure. You know, I'm the boss. Yeah. I mean, I like any scene where actors have to pretend to be bad actors. Oh, yeah. That's very enjoyable. So, And that's kind of like that whole scene. Like, they're all, you know, they're all playing a part and they're all such good actors that they're they're great at telegraphing the fact that they're acting in yeah. that scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. They uh, That, to me, at first, it kind of read as like, uh, it read as bad acting but then i realized that they were good actors playing bad actors yes, and yeah i love it's that. all intentional yeah um yeah other other b stories in this episode oh, there's multiple uh, obviously so this is the one uh where uh tony sort of comes the closest to crossing the line uh with dr melfi tries to kiss her mm-hmm. doesn't he yeah well i guess he does well she pulls away she kind of I don't know. It depends how you read it. I read it as she d- she doesn't pull away. He eventually stops, but she doesn't kiss back. That's what I remember. Well, I think she's just not. Res- I think she's just not responding. I mean, like there are a lot of right. times where he 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 not only is he crossing a line like sexually, but he, sometimes he dominates physically. Like he's he's stomping, he's standing up, he's yelling, he's towering over her, he's crowding her, and those kind of things. And in every case, she simply just stands her ground and waits waits for him to get embarrassed or self aware or something, and then she comes in and and kind of pushes him away. Right. And right. that seems to be that seems to be her strategy for dealing with that type of situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because they're it's hard to know whether they're setting up that she likes to play with fire or if they're just trying to establish why Tony thinks that she likes to play with fire because. You know, he's got that line about like why everybody else runs away. Like all the other doctors would run away from me, mm-hmm. but you, right. you yeah. stuck it out. And then she's like kind of laughing at his jokes. Uh, yeah, she does find him amusing, and I think that's actually one of the one of the things that I think becomes clear in this episode. That maybe and it, and it's a good thing too because it's easy in the run. It's early in the run of the show. Um, this question of Given all of the danger that she knows that she's exposing herself to by treating this man, why is she treating this man? Right. And part of the part of the reason is there's the voyeuristic appeal. You know, there's there's a couple of scenes uh, later in the season where she kind of is almost becoming like an unofficial consigliere, like the equivalent of what Livia is to to Johnny. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. With him and the language that she uses and the way that she talks about his situation and the other characters on the show is very much like the way that a fan of The Sopranos would talk about characters on The Sopranos. It's almost like yeah. she's watching the show and for a minute she gets to be in the writer's room. Right. Yeah. And plant some ideas that might that might turn into a plot. Yeah. And and I don't think that I think it's I don't think that's consciously what she's doing. I think she might be dimly aware that the, what she's doing on some level, but I don't think she's I don't think it's a deliberate uh, strategy of any kind. And I also don't think she thinks she's getting away with anything. I think she's a very ethical and for the most part extremely careful uh, therapist. And, you know, I'm very impressed with her overall. I think the only decision, the, in my opinion, the only decision she makes, major decision that's completely questionable is treating this guy in the first place. Oh, I thought you were going to say <laughs> when she said toodaloo. <laughs> oh, with that, but, you know, but that's the situation where like a human being, like I've run into my therapist at the supermarket and it's weird. Oh it's weird. no, it's, it's like, strange. It's like when you're a little kid and you run into your principal at the yeah. supermarket. 
it. And you don't know what to say because they're not in their usual environment. Right. Usually something unbelievably dumb pops out of your mouth and they're not exactly enjoying it either. Yeah. It's weird. So, so you eat frosted mini wheats too. Exactly. Right. (laughs) I mean, I mean, and isn't that kind of what Chase is sort of doing with therapists? It seems like he's trying to set up the idea that, you know, part of the reason that therapists do it is they get sort of this vicarious uh, glimpse into their patients' lives, and you kind of you, sure. you get to you get to um, experiment in a person's life without the consequences. Yeah, of you're it. you're playing God a little bit, yeah. and and it is voyeuristic, and uh, you know it is. I, the I, question is, do you want to be a do you want to be a a um, how to put this? Do you want to be a an observational God who right. maintains a certain distance, or do you want to be an interventionist God? Right. And I think the and I think the temptation to be an interventionist God is great, even for a good therapist. Oh yeah. And the bad ones are really really bad in how they use that power. Yeah. That they that they've been granted. But and, that's another thing that I think the show is very very good at. And this show is, I believe, aside from maybe the character of Sydney on Mash. Uh, the shrink on that show. I can't really think of another therapist who was a regular character on a show who was portrayed with as much complexity as Melfi. And not only did we have Melfi on the show, there were all of these other therapists and mental health professionals who showed up during the run of the show, including Dr. Krakauer, uh-huh. who who kind of gives a more black and white kind of judgmental reading to to Carmela. Was, was that the one three. who was like, uh, "I won't take your blood money"? Was it that? That's guy? right. And he says, "Yeah." And he says, "You know, you're uh, take." And he says, "Basically." As long as you're married to a criminal, you're never going to be safe, and you're never going to be a moral person. And you have to take, you have to leave, take, take, you know, take the kids or what's left of them, which is a really harsh thing to say. Yeah, get out. And he says, like, basically, it's like he's saying here, look, I know you and I both know you're never going to do this, but I'm telling you anyway because that way. And he says, right, no one can say that you weren't warned. Yeah, yeah, God, and, I love that guy. That and, yeah, and then there's you know Meadow. Meadow briefly has a therapist. Uh-huh. Um, there, Tony, uh, I, you know, at one point, uh, when Tony is, uh, uh, not, you know, uh, seeing Melfi, he starts going to hash, right? Like he starts going to like hash has become his substitute therapist for him. And hash has no idea that that's why Tony's visiting him, but hash just like is the world's worst. I think maybe if he'd been told, Hey, I want you to be my therapist, right. you might have behaved differently, but it's like Tony just shows up at his house and he tells him some problems that he's having. And hash replies with this long anecdote. That's about hash. Right. Is <laughs> <laughs> literally every time I've come to my father with any problem, this is exactly what happened. It was me. It's basically Tony talking with hash. Yeah. My dad, would make a dumb joke and then talk about his day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 
Um, so like when I watch this, uh, when I rewatch the series with, you know, the benefit of 20 years of hindsight, mm-hmm. um, to me, it feels like they were trying to create with Tony and Dr. Melfi, this sort of like, will they or won't they tension that you had in shows around that time? Like the X-Files, uh-huh. you know, th- there was all these like, you know, quasi, uh, maybe they're going to get together. Maybe they're not. I'm like, I'm sure that's like 90% of like Grey's Anatomy or shows like that. Yeah, it was, but, but it was like half of shows. Yeah. So yeah. that seems like that was a, like, I wonder, I wonder how much of that was, something that chase was trying to do and how much was uh you know someone from the network uh suggesting that that's maybe uh, a well, good way to go you know go. he he actually really wasn't trying to do that i mean yeah. what he was trying to do was suggest that um there was you know that tony there was a certain animal attractiveness to tony and that some part of melfi may have been attracted to it but there was never any serious discussion that anything was going to happen between them that was something that i think the audience superimposed on that relationship mm-hmm. because because there were as you say so many of those will they won't they like on cheers right the mm-hmm. x files and on and on there's a million examples now like almost every show feels obligated to put that in there because they think that people expect it and they were never really seriously entertaining the possibility that the two of them were going to have anything happen however um you know uh what they were doing which i think is more interesting is um showing you like from melfi's perspective like just from the i mean from the perspective of somebody who's a melfi watcher Uh you know it's interesting to me how she is attracted to tony because tony shows up in her dreams sometimes sexually and also she responds not all the time but occasionally responds to him with delight like a kind of a wicked delight like they're out on a date when and in fact this episode has a moment like that yeah this episode she's the most giggly yeah she giggles i mean i think this is the most like if if you were going to make a case uh, for why a viewer would come to the will there, won't they? I think this is this episode is like the high watermark of that tension. Right. Well, I would say I would say I would pick a slightly different episode, which is an episode in the fifth season when he goes back to her. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, and, and he's upset, and he's just seen the Prince of Tide. Yes, <laughs> and he gives her that gift basket with a little Tide box in it. And it says, <laughs> From your Prince of Tide, singular. <laughs> oh man! Which I mean, so, it's like that's such a weird joke that it's perfect. It's yeah. like it's like weird in the way that people. There's a lot of humor like that on the show. Like that's weird in the way that people in the world are weird. Right. Like they're so weird in a subtle way that you can't even describe their weirdness. Like yeah. That stand-up comic. Mm-hmm. The stand-up comic who. I guess he thinks he's Dennis Miller or something. He's making these pop culture references, but they're to things that are 30 to 40 years old. And like <laughs> right. shows up, he's in the nursing home. His, his references are always wrong for his audience. Cause whether he's talking to like a bunch of senior citizens in a nursing home or a bunch of like tipsy mobsters in a strip club, he's always got the wrong material uh-huh. and, he always get, and he gets belligerent when no one laughs. Mm-hmm. He gets like petulant and like, you know, it's someone else's fault that the jokes aren't landing. Like the, this guy, the, I just love the fact that like a character who is only in two scenes in the entire run of the show, you have a feeling, you have a sense of who this guy is as a human being. Mm-hmm. Just based on those, the, just based on the two times that you see him, you go like, I know what this guy's life is about. Right. Yeah. This and guy's it, angry. This guy's an angry, bitter comedian, and he he sucks. Yeah. And, and, and no, maybe no one has the heart to tell him that he's not a success because he sucks. But they keep and booking he thinks him. He's brilliant. He thinks he's the second coming of, of Lenny Bruce. This guy. God, if I had a nickel for every time I watched a comic get mad at the audience for not getting one of their dumb jokes, holy shit, I'd yeah. be rich. Is this thing on? Is this thing? Yeah, I, this yeah. thing's on. You're just your jokes aren't any good, man. I, I like it. 
when they insult the audience for not getting one of their bad jokes? We're like, oh, oh, I guess no one here went to college. I guess no one here can handle truth. Yeah, you guys will get that on the way home. Yeah, it's a slow burn. My truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or there's somebody says tough crowd. It's yeah. like tough crowd. Yeah, it'd be funny in your hands if you were funny, dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's you such know? a it's such a defense mechanism. I love watching it happen because it's so transparent. Uh-huh. Where you're transparently like. Um, acting out your insecurities uh, on the audience, yeah. and, it, and it does nothing except drive them further from you. Yeah. But so many comedians can't help but do it. I love when when uh, when they're bombing, and then they look at their notebook. I like to imagine <laughs> that their notebook just says the words, "I'm crushing it." <laughs> I loved. You know what I loved when uh, Janine Garofalo was doing stand up. She completely embraced that to the point where it became like it was like part of her shtick. She right. actually had her yellow notepad on the stage, and there were times where like if the wasn't working she would pause go over to her notebook and rifle through it to find some new shit oh yeah oh, or just yeah. like you know, you know ostentatiously cross one off the list uh, yeah, like, yeah. No, it's like it's like it's like like hold on audience yeah. give me a minute yeah, yeah. I'll, try to, I'll try to fix this yeah you're part of my process this is just exactly. practice exactly right exactly yeah. yes i'm i'm just it's i'm this is this is the workshop phase but i think uh people getting stuff wrong is obviously a theme in the show we even have a segment called uh, malapropism corner where you know, oh, yes. where, where someone references something and gets it wrong. I don't the think we sacred, had the, the sacred and the propane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't you know, think we Quasimodo had... predicted all of this. Quasimodo, that's right. Yeah. I don't think we yeah. had any in this episode specifically that I pulled out. No, you, well, you know, Christopher. Uh, I, I we realized Alan and I realized writing the book that um, Christopher is not only absolutely crazy for the movies. Of course, he wants to be a screenwriter, right? But every time he makes a reference. To any movie, he gets the dialogue wrong oh, right. or key facts wrong. Oh, yeah. We were just talking about how he was <laughs> like, uh, we're going to go off on him Scarface style, two bazookas under every arm. And it's <laughs> like, <laughs> what do you? What movie did you see, dude? <laughs> I don't remember bazookas, but okay. Yeah. I mean, he got the spirit of it, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it was in the yeah. spirit of it. But it, it's I just well, love him it, it, loving movies that much, but not being able to remember a single thing about them. Right. Well, and you also get you get the best of both worlds, which is you get a a man, in, in the episode of Lauren Bacall, you get a mangled pop culture reference that's also a malapropism and a commentary on the, on the plot of the episode, which is when he says that movie – I love that movie you were in, The Haves and Have Nots. Yeah, right. That's like – that's beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful because like you know, it's rare that The Sopranos goes and basically hands you a summary of what this episode is about. Yeah. It's really – you know, the whole luxury lounge idea. You know, like the gangsters are getting a taste of what real money actually is. Yeah. And it's, and it's and it's disturbing to them to see what real money is, <laughs> and and that joke and like the fact that that joke comes out of one of the dumbest characters on the show is just perfect. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but so- but in in terms of malapropisms, I in this episode I I wasn't I didn't notice any, but I didn't do the research on the whole spiel that uh, Tony is giving eight, uh, is giving Junior at the baseball game where he's talking about Augustus like sharing the wealth and whatnot. I, right. I, I, I had a feeling though that if I did any research, I would oh, notice. Oh no, I think he gets that mostly does he, does right. He get that I right? think so. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I assumed that it's possible he got it right, but I was like, I bet this is just filled with mi- uh, misaccurate information. I mean, it's very Well, like- you know, 
I, I, I actually tend to, I, I, you know, I haven't, I didn't fact check every historical reference to Tony, but I tend to believe him because one thing that Tony does do is he watches the History Channel. All the time. <laughs> that is a good point. Yeah, that's, that's his go to. That's his go to. That, that's his go to. Probably Turner Classic Movies and the History Channel are his uh-huh. big two. Yeah. yeah, and like we've said before, Tony would definitely be a MAGA dad. Oh, uh, in, yeah. In 2019. <laughs> you know what he would be? He would be a car rant, a car rant dad. You know, the guys who <laughs> yeah. film themselves in their cars ranting about like things like yeah. he would have an Instagram account. It would have, you know, 1500 followers. <laughs> like that would be his thing. Yeah. Yeah. And like his lawyers would be advising him not to do that. Oh, right. Be, actually, you know what? I take it back. I think Tony would be too smart to do that. But I tell you who would be doing it. Polly. Polly, yes. Oh, absolutely. Polly, yes. does, it seems like Polly would not be, you know, Polly would start to fall behind on his payments because he was on Instagram so much. Yeah. <laughs> He'd be like, you know what I'm tired of? I'm tired of seeing stray cats around my neighborhood, okay? The city needs to clean it up. Don't they know that they sold, they suck the souls right out of babies? We got to <laughs> clean up these cats. <laughs> Snakes have been fucking themselves since long before Adam and Eve came along, T. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you said you had an interesting backstory on uh, the actor who plays uh, 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 Sa- Johnny, Johnny Sack. Sack, yeah. Yeah, Vincent Curatola. Vincent Curatola was in uh, the construction business. And really? He was, acting on the, he was acting on the side. He was doing like basically low-level type theater stuff. And he was an acting teacher, but he had never been, uh, I, I don't think, any substantial film role prior to this. And wow. He, he went on auditions. He never got anything. And he's told the story a lot. But he, he got the audition for The Sopranos, and he arrived... Uh, he was the last person uh, on the last day for this part, and I think he went in thinking, "I'm never going to get this because I never get anything." And he gets there, and and he he decides to, to smoke a cigarette before he goes up. Oh. And he smokes a cigarette, and when he goes up, they're packing up to go. Wow! And he's like, "Oh shit, I shouldn't have smoked that cigarette." And they and uh, the casting director said, "Well, you know what? Since you're here, go ahead and read." And he was good enough that they called him back, and he eventually got the part. But he was, you know, there were a lot of actors on this show who were not really act. I mean, they were right. actors like they'd taken classes and maybe they had a little technique and a little potential, but they weren't known quantities. And like he was one of them. And uh, the uh, the actor who played um, uh, Bobby Bacala. Sharippa was a, um, I believe he was like a hospitality chief at a casino. Like he was in charge (laughs) of like entertainment or something like that. And he he had done done some acting. He had done some acting, but it was mostly on the order of like, you know, fourth mobster from the right. Sure, sure, sure. Never had like a big speaking part where he was actually playing a character who was interesting, you know? Yeah. Uh, So that was new. And uh, and they had, you know, they also cast. they did an open casting call between season two and three, and they were looking for uh, people who um, would just feel real, like they wanted like real New Jersey people. And that's another thing is remember David Chase. He's not just a fan of the European art cinema. He's a fan of Italian cinema generally. And right. There's a tradition of neorealism that started in the late 40s and early 50s where – they they were looking for a degree of kind of heart. They they were feeling like let's trade a little bit of polish and technique for a little bit of realism and cast actual people. So mm-hmm. if you look at Italian films from that era, roughly from the late 1940s until like the early 60s was when it started to wane. There were a lot of movies where they were they were populated by people who were just like their their job prior to this was they were a bricklayer or right. they were school teacher or something and like in other countries there's traditions of this too like Iranian cinema has a tradition of this where 
actors would come in from life, you know, and they would leave their life behind and they would become an actor for a while and they would do <laughs> five or six films and then they would stop and they would go back to whatever it was they were doing before they started acting. And, and, you know, he wanted to do that. And actually David Simon on the wire did a bit of that as well. Did you ever talk to uh, chase about, we mentioned on a couple episodes ago when there was the, uh, the, the hullabaloo with the, the with the Hasids oh, and yeah. Chuck Lowe, who was in Goodfellas, apparently he like started out as, uh, was Robert De Niro's landlord at one point before he was ever in Goodfellas <laughs> or an actor? <laughs> That's wow. Great. I missed that factoid. I wish I'd put that on the book. That's fantastic. Yeah, the guy who plays Maury for, from, uh, from Goodfellas. De Niro's uh, landlord. That's great. Well, you know, uh, Kumar Palana, the late Kumar Palana from Wes Anderson's movies, was the uh, manager of a of a um, vegetarian restaurant and jazz bar that Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson used to go to in Dallas. <laughs> of like course. he was, in, and he was an actor before. Like he was an actor in his native India. Yeah, and he left India. You know, when India subdivided, you know, and Pakistan broke off and became its own country, and there right. was widespread, there was bloodshed. He he left. He just got. He was like, I got to get out of here, and he came to America. So he was a trained like acrobat <laughs> actor juggler, but he hadn't done any serious acting at all. Just when I thought I was out. They pulled That's me back in. Totally, what it was. It was like it was like forty years between when he was in Bottle Rocket and when he had done any acting. So, wow. you know, but these things happen. And like I, I sometimes like, especially in New York, I would come across people who had a, a history in the entertainment business, but it was only part of their life. Like there was an old woman who lived across the uh, courtyard from me in the first apartment I was in in New York, who was the stage manager of Pippin, of the Bob Fosse production. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she was, you know, living by herself on a third floor apartment and she was like in her 80s or something at that point. But, you know, it's they're everywhere, like there are artists all around us. And and I think the fact that the show um, intentionally tried to spotlight that is one of the reasons why the 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 performances feel uh, special. Yeah, because they're not stretching. That's the thing is like if you're casting, you know, real like Bobby Bacala is that guy, you know, he's not, yeah. he's not stretching in terms of his like acting capability. Although he does a pretty good convincing, uh, cry when he was uh, mourning the death of his wife. He's uh, good. He's a good actor. He's not, yeah. you know, he's not a guy that you're necessarily going to say like, what a, what a great Abraham Lincoln. Right. Movie. I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah, he's not going to go no. method and play Abraham Lincoln, but you know, he's, he's living as Bobby Bacala's entire life. Might as well get that part. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, and a lot of these a lot of these guys are like uh, you know, they're they're if they're not of the life, they're adjacent to the life. And of course Tony Sirico actually was in the mob. And he did time in federal prison on a weapons charge. Have you ever heard about his arrest? No. Okay, so Tony Sirico was uh, he his arrest. This is on you can find this online, like in one of those uh, the smoking gun, you know, where they have people oh, sure, sure, sure. records and stuff. But yeah. He led police on a high-speed chase through Manhattan going up Broadway. And you know that there's a spot on like 72nd Street where the street divides and there's a concrete like V-shape. Well, he crashed right into that. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, prior to that, he was a, he was a, a stick-up man and he would rob, uh, you know, rob stores and he robbed other mobsters and he wow. robbed, you know, gambling dens. There was a lot of the kind of stuff that you saw on the show he was, Rico was actually doing. He and was he like Omar. Yes, he was, and he was like Omar, and he actually got busted uh, one time. He he was arrested a bunch of times, but one time he was arrested for sticking up the same place twice, wearing the same blonde wig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I mean, not the smartest man in the world, but he plays a really great dumb guy. I mean, he does. He's yeah, he's great. He's great, and I just love you know just a little bit, little again, just the little details of character. Polly's the, the funniest character. Oh, he's to, by far the funniest character, and it's just the most brilliant, brilliant character on the <laughs> and show. And he says like, I love, and there's so many moments of like the casual. Everybody, almost every character on the show is a pathological narcissist, but sure. his brand of it is really special. Like when the, the Italy episode where. You know, Tony's got some fairly heavy-duty boss-type stuff happening, and they're right. around this dinner table, and there's a lot of protocol that needs to be observed, and the egos that need to be massaged. Uh-huh. And and Tony and, and and Polly is completely not paying attention to any of that. At one point, he turns to him and he's like, did you, what does he say? Like, did you try the? Uh, he's like, ah, you got to try the squid. Tea. Yeah, it's the squid ink you know? pasta, and he like, and he doesn't, he doesn't know what to do with it. And yeah. He's like, you guys got any like spaghetti and gravy? My favorite is when he's sitting at the cafe and he just stares at a guy for long enough, and, and as soon as he looks, he goes, "Buongiorno." <laughs> <laughs> And that's David Chase. That's David Chase's uh, one of his one of his cameos on the show. Is he's the guy in the ponytail? Oh, he gives yeah. that look like he's a big pile of shit. It's a, <laughs> and it's a great. It's a great. It's perfect. His timing is perfect. He gives him that look like I've had that look yeah. when I visit other countries and I'm trying to be a little too familiar. You're right. You know, that's the look of like go back to America, idiot. Yeah. You right. know? <laughs> yeah. Um, that was like uh, when I went to when I went to Ireland. You know, there you when you go to another country and they, you have to declare. I'd never been out of the country. My first time was going to Ireland for a film festival. And uh, when the plane is landing, they say uh, you got to fill out your customs card uh, and make sure to say if you have anything to declare. And I misheard it, and I thought you were only supposed to fill it out if you didn't if you had something to declare. And I was uh-huh. like, I don't have anything to declare, so I'm not going to fill it out. So I get in line, and I get up to the to the glass, and the guy says, "Where's your card?" And I said, "I didn't fill it out." And he says, "Why not?" And I said, because I don't have anything to declare. And he's like, that's when then you're supposed to check the little box that says nothing to declare. <laughs> yeah. And I said, oh, I didn't realize that. And he's like, it's standard procedure. And he gives me, he slides a card through the desk and I'm like, okay. And then there's a pause and he's, and then he slides me a pencil because <laughs> that's a big idiot I am. And I'm, and everybody behind me is staring daggers into the back of my of neck and I'm sitting there filling out the card and I was like, you know, anything to declare? No, I make sure to check the box and I slide it back to him and he's like, you forgot to sign it. And I'm like, uh, I signed it and I give it to him again and he stamps it and he looks me right in the eye and he goes superpower indeed <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> greatest burns i've ever been on the receiving end of oh, superpower indeed that is amazing <laughs> yeah he burned me and my entire country wow <laughs> i had one of those experiences uh when i was in australia for the first time only time uh i'm like i'm i just got off the plane I'm I'm like on a layover and I'm like hungry after a 14 hour flight. So I go to the airport stand to get like a sandwich and, uh, and the lady, the lady's making my sandwich and she asked me what I thought she asked me was something to drink. And uh-huh. I said, uh, no, I'll just have water. And then she looked at me like I'm a, like a huge moron. And I realized what she actually <laughs> asked was margarine. Because uh, apparently in Australia, when you're making a chicken sandwich, they ask you if you want them to spread margarine on it, uh, which they pronounce margarine. And that was not something that ever occurred to me that someone would ask me while they're making a sandwich. I would turn around right then and there. <laughs> I'd be like, I am done with this entire yeah. continent. You get right back on the plane. Yeah, I'm getting back on the plane. So she asked margarine, and I was like, no, I'll just have water. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not butter. <laughs> this is butter. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, so dumb. Um, so another segment that we haven't gotten to, uh-huh. uh, Only in Dreams. Only in Dreams. This is where we uh, talk about the dream sequences of the episode. Yeah, this one had probably the most on-the-nose dream sequence yeah, of the yeah. first few episodes. Yeah, there's not too much to interpret from from it. It's, uh, it's fairly clear. Uh, both dream sequences are uh, where... They're both misdirections. At first, you think uh, he's having sex with his uh, Gumar, um, who is Irina. Yep. And then uh, she comes up from the from the covers, and it is uh, Doctor Melfi. And she says, "What does she say? Something like uh, I like your cannoli, or something along the right. lines of talking about his cannoli." Oh, Tony, I love your cannoli. That's what she says. Yeah. And then the second time, uh, he thinks he's walking into. I think his wife, uh, Carmela, in the shower. Right. And it turns out to be, again, Melfi. So it's all the women in his life, and uh, they all turn into Melfi at some point. Yeah, and then Tony's actively trying to turn Arena into uh, oh, Melfi. I have a clip of this one, yes. and I like this one because it's not quite a malapropism, but it's definitely like they're two ships passing in the night Absolutely. that don't quite understand each other. Yeah. You know, you have a nice body. You ought to make it work for you more. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah, you reveal too much. You don't want other men looking at me? No, when you're not with me, you do what you want. <laughs> but I'm saying maybe you could wear a nice business-like outfit. God. I think I could get into that. You want me to dress like a man? No. <laughs> no, you fucking wackadoo. I don't want you to dress like a man. I'm just saying maybe wear something a little more professional. You know, like you're in business. Oh, fuck you, Tony. I'm no whore. (laughs) That's not what I mean. Not like you're in the whore business. (laughs) Oh, forget it. Come here. And then they have a big fight. But uh, Yeah, that's the fight where he says, fuck you, you refugee to to her, (laughs) which is, uh, you know, that's the thing about Tony. He really cuts to the core. He gets gets real xenophobic real quick whenever they're arguing. He gets xenophobic and he says things that, like, you realize, like, the burn itself... From an outside perspective, you'd, you're, you know, they're, they're either racist or whatnot. But if you're that person, it's got to hurt a thousand times more. Like the first, uh, in the opening scene with uh, Vin McKazian, the detective, uh, he uh, is, you know, giving him an update on everything that Mel- Melfi is doing, you know, having, you know, followed her and whatnot. And then I think he gives... He gives uh, Tony gives him some money and then says, "Go buy an iron," mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, obviously his shirts are all fucking wrinkled and shit. Because he's a you know he's a dirty scumbag detective. But it's like you see the hurt in Vin McKazian's face there, and <laughs> and later you know he, uh, in the show at one point he Vin McKazian actually says like you know exactly how to cut someone down, like you know how to like sum people up in just a few words. And uh, yeah, Tony is. When it comes to like sick burns for the individual person that he's burning, he's pretty brutal. Like that's I he think cuts to the quick. Yeah, he does, and I think that's where it shows like kind of his sociopathic nature a little bit because it's like he says kind of the worst thing to everyone whenever he can, you know, if he's mad. He does, and yet he also sometimes I think uh, hits on uh, an eternal truth. Like one of my favorite quotes of his is, "They say every day is a gift, but why does it have to be a pair of socks?" Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah but he's true. but that's part of the tragedy of Tony is I think Tony is um, 
you know, he's the main character because he's the, you know, on the mob side of things, he's the deepest. Right. He's of them. And he's he very has perceptive. He's very perceptive and his and there's and his personality is very complex and there's also an a a a uh, he has a philosophy of life that he maybe is he doesn't think of it as being that way but he does and it's a lot more complicated and interesting than say Polly's right um, mm-hmm. and 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 he's also uh you know there is a sensitivity and an empathy to him that makes his viciousness um, more sad, right? Yep. And I think, and I and I really relate uh, a lot of the thematic thrust of the Sopranos uh, to Barry, which is probably my favorite show right now. Where, like in both cases, like the thing that each character is like, like the world around them is trying to push them into being this sort of like actualized person right. who can uh, be transparent. Uh, about themselves mm-hmm. but their job is requiring the exact opposite sure. of them it's like the you know like barry's acting coach is like trying to get him to open up and he's trying to do that but then there's like this barrier that he can't get past which is the fact that he kills people for a living yeah. and it seems like tony and dr melfi it's like the pretty much the same relationship in right. both cases yeah it is in fact i would go so far and i'm not the first person to say this but i would go so far as to say that barry is like a lot of shows that came after The Sopranos. It is it is an extraction of certain pieces of The Sopranos, and sure. then they sort of delve into them. And in this case, it's that you know the thing you mentioned, which is the relationship between Tony and Melfi. Mm-hmm. But it's also that 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 episode where Christopher goes to that writing for actors class, <laughs> right? And he acts a scene from Wherever Without a Cause, and he's weeping and clinging to <laughs> his scene partner's leg because yeah. he's reliving the trauma of his father of his father's death, right? You know, and not being abandoned by his father, like physically, but like, you know, through death. Right. And, and it's a very deep scene. But then he but he also, you know, he's he's got maybe maybe a quarter of the IQ of Tony. So there's even less hope for, for <laughs> yeah. you know, but uh, but a lot of there's a lot there's a whole tradition of like shows that came after The Sopranos that took basically what they thought to be the most interesting thing of The Sopranos. and They turned it into its own show. And there was, you know, Brotherhood on Showtime. And there was that uh, there was a show on NBC Kingpin, uh, which was about the Mexican mafia, uh-huh. and then there was Boardwalk Empire, which was kind of all the gang stuff, and and they kind of got rid of the shrink stuff, really, yeah. and, and most of the domestic stuff. There's not a lot of women on that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sopranos has a lot more women than than your typical crime show does. Definitely, and then the, Shield, the Shield is kind of like a shadow answer to the Sopranos, except the gangsters are cops this time. And then Mad Men, of course, you know, created like Boardwalk by somebody who worked on that show is uh uh the sopranos without the gangster stuff right you know like no the, murders the, the, the most violence you get is a guy gets his foot run over with a lawnmower or right. don punches santa or something mm-hmm. like that but, <laughs> yeah. and game of thrones is sopranos with dragons <laughs> i mean in, in terms of family dynamic you know the five families different houses come on come on guys work sure, with me sure. here it, work is, with me. it is it is it is godfather it is yeah godfather you know the sopranos it's they're very much a gangster show and you know deadwood which i love and i and, and you know they finally got to make their movie it's it's in a lot of ways it's the sopranos and cowboy hats it's yeah, like yeah. you know it's our town plus the sopranos yeah and you John know. from Cincinnati is surfing Sopranos. <laughs> kind of, you know, like you know, but even like no, it is, it is. And, I, and, uh, I wish and I remembered Locke, anything that, about that, that horse, show. The horse show that uh, David Milch did was, um, you know, there were so many scenes of The Sopranos that were about gambling that were set at the track, and that yeah. show, the main character of that show, was a gangster. Right, he's yeah. like a loquacious, powerful, 
gangster with a lot of preening self-regard sound like anyone we know i yeah. wish they hadn't killed all those horses because i actually liked that show yeah so it's a good show it was a good show in retrospect you know maybe it's a show that never should have gotten a green light like i feel like somebody involved with the production should have foreseen that this sort of thing could happen because, <laughs> yeah. you know it's like there are some people who think that racing is a form of animal cruelty even when it's just one race at a time and here they were running the horses around and around the track repeatedly until they got the shots that they wanted yeah, you know, I could this, see that. So yeah, it's it's it was tr- they were just asking for it, but but yeah, I think like this show, the thing that uh, the thing that I think uh, was the most revelatory to me about revisiting all of the seasons of the show was how how well they held together at the level of the season because I had this, I guess it was a false memory, probably because there were so many shows that came along after The Sopranos that made a much bigger deal out of the whole season being one unit, right. Um, I think I had this false idea that season one was a very unified story and all of the rest of the seasons were more fragmented. And I found that that was really not true for any of them. Yeah. Um, some were more unified than others, but even something like season three, which I had wrongly remembered as being very disconnected, like almost like a collection of short stories, that one is, is extremely unified. It's just – it's not the gang stuff that really unifies it. It's the psychology because that's hmm. the episode. That's the season where Livia dies right. mm-hmm. in the second episode, and then the rest of the – then there's this string of episodes that are – you know, uh, Tony is co- dealing with the aftermath of his mother's death and denying the psychological effect that it has on him. And then later in the season, who shows up? It's Gloria. Oh, who's that's eventually, right. That's the Gloria you know, season. Analyzed as being uh, – you know, that the, Melfi kind of practically hands it to Tony, and yeah. he still – he and interestingly, he – he never actually owns it. Like she says, you know, she describes what type of person Gloria is and says, does it sound like anyone you know? And he shrugs. Yeah, well, like, I he mean, does. he's got that scene yeah. where he's just like, uh, I know you. I've known you my entire life, he exactly. says to her. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and he's like, fucking a lot his of- mom. <laughs> he is. He is totally. He's, and then he's actually, going full Freud. Yeah, that's like yeah. a good teaser for all of our uh, future episodes. Yeah, uh, that yeah, we're yeah. going to do of this podcast. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. For those of you, one, for those of you who um, haven't already seen all of the Sopranos, uh, disregard the last. <laughs> yeah, I imagine at this now point, it's going to be every, spoiler filled. Everyone has seen the Sopranos. Yeah, it's fine. But this episode has officially wrapped. Uh, I think we covered. You know, oh, we covered a lot of. We ground. covered a lot of ground. Yeah. There was no. I didn't know there were spoiler issues. Oh no, there's oh, so there's no spoilers. We we okay. always say that there's not going to be spoilers, and then we spoil everything because it's the freaking Sopranos. It's Every- fun to piss off people who think that spoilers are a thing. at this point. If you think there's spoil, like if you're like, oh, I just started watching it. That's on you, dude. Yeah. What are you doing listening <laughs> to a podcast? Well. I want to thank you so much for coming on, uh, Matt Zoller Sites. We really we appreciated it, and also reading the book that uh, the recent book that you and Alan wrote, and I love it. You guys, thank you so much. You guys did a great job, and thank you so much for uh, coming uh, on the podcast. It was my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No and uh, Vince, you want to take us on out of here? Uh, what do I say? Are you going to play the song again? No, <laughs> we should. Well, we we always say that. I'm, I'm, a little, to... I'm a little sad that you're not playing the song again. I, we, I gotta be honest. We but keep, that's it's your show. We yeah. keep saying that I'm going to play the Journey song on the on the outro, yeah, but I don't I don't want to get sued. So uh, it's but we just until do a few next s- time. Okay, so until next time, don't stop believing. Don't stop believing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye bye.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.